Uh, such a blessing to be here. I'm so thankful the uh, hospitality and fellowship has just been amazing. Uh, you all have been so loving to me and my family, so thank you for that. Uh, it's been a great joy to be here this weekend and um, wonderful this morning, first hour, looking at God's mercy and His grace. It's been a joy to sing to our King together and to have read from His Word, to pray before our God, and now we come to our time where we open God's Word together. And I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 7. I trust that you have been enjoying your journey through the Gospel of John, marveling at the majesty of Christ, and we get to do that again today, to marvel at our Savior We're in John chapter 7, and our verses are 37 through 52. I'll go ahead and read through that for us. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that No prophet arises out of Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless us with understanding of your word. We need your help, Lord. We will not understand it rightly without your help. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us not just to understand what it says, but that it would impact our souls. We pray that you would drive your word deep. We ask, Lord, that you would do a deep work in us for your glory. We ask that you would make us more like Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we see our Lord Jesus extending an invitation. He says to come to him and to drink. And I'll tell you, there's no greater invitation than the invitation to come to Christ. You can get an invitation from the White House. You can get an invitation from Buckingham Palace, from King Charles himself. I don't care where it comes from. I don't care who sent it. There is no greater invitation than the invitation to come to Christ. This invitation excels all others, and it matters more than any 
other. Those other invitations go in the junk mail pile that you throw out in comparison to this invitation to Christ. And so my prayer for you all has been that you would embrace Christ's invitation to come to Him and to drink, to find your satisfaction in Him. And that as you find your satisfaction in Him, that in turn will make you a channel of His blessing in life to others. As we walk through this text, we'll look at the proclamation of the invitation, followed by the explanation of the invitation, and finally the responses to the invitation. So first we come to the proclamation of the invitation. Verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. John mentions a feast, and so we need to ask the question, what feast? Well, back in verse 2 of John 7, we learn that it is the Feast of Booths. This is one of three times in the year when Jews would flock to Jerusalem from all over to celebrate particular feasts. And we get Yahweh's specific instructions for this feast back in Leviticus 23. Verse 39 of that chapter in Leviticus says that it was to be done after the the gathering in of the crops. So it has this, this harvest feel to it. And then in verses 42 and 43 of Leviticus 23, it says, You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So this feast was a means of commemorating Yahweh's salvation when he led his people out from the bondage of Egypt. An additional tradition that eventually developed within this feast wasn't originally prescribed, but it it eventually developed was uh, that the high priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go to the pool of Siloam and he would fill it up with water and he would lead a procession back to the temple. And at one point, the people recite Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says, Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. With the crowds Watching the high priest would eventually pour out the water at the altar in conjunction with the morning sacrifice. There's also the singing of the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118, that is occurring within this celebration. And these psalms were used to praise God in reflection again of his deliverance of the people from the bondage of Egypt. This ceremony with the water in particular looked in the past, the present, the future. There was the past provision of water from the rock. Exodus 17, when they were living in those booths, after God had delivered them. And then there's the present provision of the rains for the harvest, that they're thanking God for, perhaps even praying for the next year's rains. And then there's a future look at the coming days of the Messiah when he would bring God's blessing. They would sh- it would shower upon the nation. Now, in our passage, we're at the, the last and great day. They've been doing this every day for a week, and they're on the last day, the climactic day of the festivities. It's the last day for the water to be poured out. The people are singing of the salvation of Yahweh. And this part of the festivities would reach its peak, and it's... It's been said that there was a hush that would fall over the people. And it's thought that perhaps at that very moment is when Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the rock who supplied the water to your ancestors. I am the one who gives you the rains for your harvest. I am the Messiah who will usher in blessings upon this nation. If this ceremony has left you thirsty, come to me 
and drink. He says this invitation is to anyone. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what you've done. Really, the, the only requirement is that you're thirsty. Because if you're not thirsty, you won't drink. You know what it's like to be thirsty. In fact, every time that you drink, take a sip of your drink, it's because you're thirsty. Your body needs the fluids. You're replenishing those fluids. And if you let that go long enough, if you let that thirst go long enough and don't meet that, eventually you die because your body needs those fluids to keep living. Jesus, of course, is talking about a, a spiritual thirst here. If we're going to come to Him and drink, we have to recognize our spiritual dehydration. We have to have that thirst. We have to know that we lack. We have to know the desperation of our situation if we are to drink. If you're not thirsty, you won't drink. Or your problem may be that you're thirsty, but you look to quench that thirst in the wrong places, the wrong sources. You need to know that nothing else will satisfy. Only Christ. So if you thirst, come to Jesus and drink. Jesus continues this proclamation of his invitation, verse 38. He says, He who believes in me As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. To come and to drink is a picture of believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to find your ultimate satisfaction in him. You must have in your heart the the mindset of the disciples displayed back in John 6, verse 68, when Jesus Asked, people were leaving him. He says, are you going to leave me as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We can't go anywhere else. There's, there's no source of life anywhere else but you, Lord. Only you. Jesus then describes what results from this believing in him. He ties it back to the Old Testament. So one who believes in him says that rivers of living water will be overflowing from him out of his innermost being. The living water which Jesus offers is so abundant that not only will it fill you up and satisfy you, but it's going to overflow out from within you like channels of water. That's how abundant the supply is. It's limitless. Now, Jesus has already mentioned living water before in a more private setting. You may recall John 4. Let's turn there. He speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. In verse 10... He mentions the living water. And then in verse 13 and 14, he says this, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to Eternal life. Jesus offers for people to come to Him and drink of His living water. It's a a water of life. Eternal life welling up in the one who drinks. Now look back at John 7. We have two commands. To come to Jesus and to drink. 
And these two commands are in the present tense, which indicates a continual action. Also, even the participle, he who believes, is in the present tense. And so, the idea is keep coming, keep drinking, keep believing in Christ. And as you do, you will be filled to overflowing with life, the life that He gives. So I ask you, are you thirsty? Have you been coming to Jesus? Have you been drinking of the life that He offers? Or have you gone dry, sipping on other things that can't truly satisfy your thirst? Come to Jesus and drink. Drink of the living water that He offers that will refresh your soul. Believe in Him, and He will fill you until you are overflowing. What a glorious proclamation of the invitation. It's amazing to just picture our Savior making this declaration. We've seen a glorious proclamation which Jesus extends at that peak day and that peak point at the feast. Next, John is going to give an explanation of the invitation. Verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John takes a moment here for an aside, for some commentary to explain what's come before. To explain what it is for the rivers of living water to flow out from one's innermost being. We've seen so far that that coming and drinking is a picture of, of believing. that We act upon that belief. We respond to Christ. The one who believes in Jesus and drinks of his living water will receive life, eternal life, as we saw in John 4. And what John's explanation then is going to reveal here is that the source of that eternal life is the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, John speaks as though there's a bit of deferral here with respect to the experience of that overflowing rivers of water. At that moment, Jesus spoke. People who believed were not going to immediately experience this overflowing aspect. Certainly, they could receive eternal life immediately, the the life that the Spirit gives. We know Old Testament saints, they were regenerated. They received the gift of faith. But there was a new era approaching that was going to follow Jesus being glorified in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. He tells the disciples about this in John 14 through 16, that, that upper room discourse. He tells them it was to their advantage that he go away. I'm sure they were thinking, how can that be that you going away would be to our advantage? But it was, because Jesus said it was. The disciples learned what he was speaking about with Pentecost. There are some unique elements about Pentecost that do not carry forward like the sign gifts. But there are some differences with this new covenant blessing of the Spirit that do carry forward today. You can see a higher level of empowerment for holy living compared to Old Testament saints. Uh, The Old Covenant era also concentrated on empowerment of specific leaders, but you see the Spirit really dispensing across the church gifts and emboldening the whole church to be witnesses for Christ. So these are some of the distinctive ways that the Spirit hadn't come and was going to come in this time. And so Jesus is telling them it's a soon-coming thing. It's not yet an experience for them. So, Jesus is inviting them to come to Him and to drink, to believe in Him, to receive a life from Him. 
But then there's this overflowing element where you're empowered to be a witness and to be a blessing to others that will overflow as the Spirit overflows in your life. And that empowerment is what they would have to wait for until Pentecost. Now it's instantaneous. You come to Him and you drink and you believe and you're filled until you're overflowing with the life of the Spirit. I want us to go back to Jesus' reference to the Scripture in verse 38 in light of what we've read in verse 39. He doesn't cite a specific passage there. I believe he's, he's referring to a matrix of verses that come together to build out what he's talking about here. We won't be able to look at them all, but I want to show you a few. So, Look with me at Jeremiah. We'll, we'll see what Jeremiah has to say in chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Verse 13. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The people had rejected Yahweh, the fountain of living waters. And instead, they'd opted to find satisfaction in gods of their own making that were broken leaking cisterns that can hold no water. Nothing that's life-giving there. Not only had they forsaken Him, that is offensive, because of how glorious He is. How can you forsake one like this? But then they preferred broken cisterns over Him. It's doubly offensive. If you're going to overflow with rivers of living water, you have to be drinking from the fountain of living waters, our God. There is no other source of life. You will find it nowhere else. Now let's see what Isaiah has to say. Chapter 55. Verses 1 through 3. says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Anyone who thirsts is invited to come to Yahweh and to drink freely without cost. And if they would incline their ear and come to Him, they can live Just a few chapters over, again, Isaiah 58, verse 11. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This one reflects more of that, that picture of as you come and drink that it's overflowing. It's like a spring. So Jesus says to come to Him and drink. Drink of Him. That's where the fountain is. And as you drink from that fountain, it, it makes you like sort of a, a mini fountain in a way where the Spirit of God is filling you up and overflowing and, and just pouring out around you 
It's amazing. So these are a few of those texts that I believe Jesus is talking about as he proclaims this and calls people to come to him and to drink because he is the fountain of living waters. The Spirit, the Spirit proceeds from Him. The Spirit of life proceeds from Him. As you drink, He will fill you with His Spirit. Rivers of living water will thus overflow and make you a blessing to others. So the question is, are you thirsty? Will you come and drink? Have you been drinking from broken cisterns that can hold no water? Are you depending on the Spirit of God, or are you operating in the flesh? Have you been in God's Word lately, or have you been running on the fumes of past study, just getting a sprinkling of the Word here and there? Or how is your prayer life? Have you truly been seeking the face of God it's one statement incredibly convicting to me that I read in a book by H.B. Charles. He said, the things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. We are to pray about everything because we need God for everything. Every hour, every moment. We need God. If you've gotten distracted from the Lord and have not been coming and drinking, come to Him and drink. Be satisfied in Him and be filled to the brim and overflowing with His life. Trust Him with everything. You need His Word constantly informing your thinking, and you need to be bringing everything to Him in prayer. We must throw aside the broken cisterns that can hold no water and turn to Yahweh, who is a fountain of living waters, and drink in those living waters that the Spirit makes available for you to walk in. We've seen the glorious proclamation of the invitation, and we've Consider the explanation of the invitation. Finally, we look at the responses to the invitation. Looking back at John 7, verses 40, to the end of our passage, we'll pick up in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. The, this, the Jews had sent priests and Levites to ask John the Baptist back in John chapter 1, are, are you the prophet? That's one of the things they asked him. Now, they, they got this idea of looking for the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Yahweh had said to Moses there, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. So in other words, there's this greater Moses that is coming. So some are thinking, Jesus must be the, the prophet. He must be this greater Moses. Verse 41, others were saying, this is the Christ. So people at this time didn't necessarily think that the prophet and the Christ were the same person. We know that to be the case. Uh, but some are saying the prophet, others are saying this is the Christ. And the Christ is basically the New Testament uh, word for Messiah, the Old Testament, the anointed one, the, the Davidic king, son of David. Well, Jesus is both, right? He's the prophet and he's the Christ. That is true. Looking back at verse 41, still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So there's some saying he is the Christ. There's some saying he's not the Christ. 
The ones that are saying he's not the Christ are mistaken about where he was born. They're mistaken about his lineage. They're thinking he's not, he was not born in Bethlehem. He was. And they're thinking he's not a descendant of David. He was. Jesus fulfilled these. They, they were correct about the credentials. But they were mistaken that Christ had fulfilled those credentials. Micah 5.2, it does say he will be born in Bethlehem. As we'll see later, they may have been just regurgitating some of the teaching from the religious leaders because they're saying the same kind of thing about Galilee and their issues with Christ. So they're, they're probably reproducing what they've been hearing from these leaders. They say he's from Galilee. He can't be the Messiah. Verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Now, we're not surprised that Jesus caused division, right? After all, he said in Matthew 10, verse 34 to 36, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The dividing line that Jesus causes here in families is between believers and unbelievers, those who are aligned with Christ and those who are opposed to Christ. And so Christ, in a sense, unites. He unites people either who love him or he unites people who are enemies against him, and, and thereby there is a division among people. Verse 44. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And verse 30 tells us the reason that no one could lay hands on him. It's because his hour had not yet come. God was not allowing them to seize him. That's why they couldn't lay hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? They were supposed to apprehend him and they, they didn't. The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? You can just see the sting based on the comments that they're making and, and the comments that the temple officers had delivered. It just stung these leaders to hear that, to hear them say something like that about how Christ speaks. What do you mean he's spoken in, in, in this amazing way? That's their attitude. And so they badmouth these officers in response, calling them deceived, led astray. Verse 48, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? So the, the Pharisees now assert themselves as the authority, that they're the standard for what is true. We haven't believed in him, so you should figure it out. He must not be legitimate, otherwise we would be embracing him. Verse 49 but this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. The Pharisees continue asserting themselves as the supreme authority. Anyone who disagrees with them must be ignorant of the law. Ironically, it was the religious leaders who were truly ignorant of the law and accursed. Pride is blinding. Lord, help us. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? This parenthetical note from John refers back to John 3, where Nicodemus makes his first appearance in John's gospel, he, we learned there, was a Pharisee. He was a 
ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the law, who came to Jesus by night to get more clarity on, on who Jesus is. And Jesus proclaimed the gospel to Nicodemus at that time. And you fast forward to John chapter 7, and at the very least at this point, Nicodemus is not falling in line with his fellow Pharisees. You can see that he is not joining them in their adamant dismissal and condemnation of Christ. He wisely points out that they should not be making a judgment call on him without a proper trial. Nicodemus is probably referring to Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. It says, Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. So it is a well-grounded point that Nicodemus makes. The law says that every man should receive his due process without partiality. And we see the response of Nicodemus's fellow Pharisees in verse 52. They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. The Pharisees continue to show their ungodliness. They, they hurl insults at people who disagree with them. Galilee was a, a Gentile-saturated region, and the Jews had disdain for it. And Nathaniel exemplifies that common attitude in John 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's <laughs> the way they thought about this area. The Pharisee statement that no prophet comes out of Galilee is just plain wrong. Rage will get you saying all kinds of ridiculous things. People make loose and ridiculous claims when they're mad and their idols have been threatened. To name one prophet, Jonah was from Galilee. So at this point, they're just really, really not thinking straight at all. If only they would take their own advice and search the Scripture. Now, this won't be the last mention of Nicodemus. Look at John 19. Picking up at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So it looks like Nicodemus eventually came to Christ and drank of that water. He's serving Christ. He's helping to care for his body that will soon be raised. That's beautiful. It's glorious redemption we see in the life of Nicodemus. Perhaps John even learned of this conversation between Nicodemus and the Pharisees from Nicodemus himself following his conversion. One other interesting note I want to make is that there is a prophecy about Messiah not being born in Galilee, but nevertheless coming forth from Galilee. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. 
beginning in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Davidic king's light would shine brightly by the way of the sea in Galilee of the Gentiles. He is almighty God himself, and he would take on flesh. This is Jesus, this is our King, coming forth from Galilee of the Gentiles and blessing the nation and ruling it with justice and with peace. Now we see a variety of responses to this King's invitation to come to Him and to drink and to be filled and be overflowing with the spirit of life that proceeds from Him. The only appropriate response is the one he commanded to come and to drink, to believe in him. See your need of him. He is the source of life. The spirit of life proceeds from him. You need him. This invitation that Jesus gives is truly remarkable when you consider how holy He is. This Holy One is standing in the midst of a sinful people. And He invites them to come to Him. He invites people who are dead in sin to come to Him so that they can be washed And so they can receive life. What mercy we see in our Savior. He calls for all who thirst to come to Him. Now perhaps there's someone here this morning who's come to realize you've never truly repented of your sins and come to Jesus. You've never really come and partaken of that drink of living waters. Maybe you've been in church for a long time and you've got a double life. You've never really come. You've never really tasted His life. I urge you to come to Him and drink today. Today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And He is the only source of life. You need to know that Jesus is the Son of God And that He took on human flesh like ours. And that He lived a perfect life in our place. A life we could never live. And then He died the death that we deserve for our sins. An eternity of suffering in hell. Because we have sinned against an infinitely, eternally holy God. But it didn't end there. 
Because he rose. He defeated death. And everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the Savior will have life forever. So let me implore you, be reconciled to God today. Trust in Christ today. Come to Him and drink. Come to Him and be filled with His life. He is mighty to save. Believe in Christ and live. For those who are in Christ, have you been coming and drinking? Have you been looking to Christ to sustain you? Perhaps you feel spiritually parched. Maybe you've been neglecting the fountain and striving in your own strength. You need Christ. Go to Christ and drink. Repent of looking to other things to fill you. Go to Christ. My brothers who are husbands, how on earth are we going to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and nourished them and cherished them like our own bodies if we're not coming and drinking from the fountain? We can't do it. There's no way. We need Christ. We need to come and drink of his life so that it can overflow from us and then we can be a blessing to our spouse. As we think about how Christ has so loved us, that will melt our hearts so that we can show that kind of love to others. My sisters who are wives, how on earth are you going to submit to and respect fallible husbands? You can't. You need the grace of God. You need the life of God. You need to come and drink and think about the fact that you have a glorious stewardship from Christ to be a picture of the church's relationship to Christ in this world. And you need the grace of God to be able to walk that out, to to see it for what it is and the honor that it is to serve the Lord in that way. And as you drink, it will overflow and you can be a blessing to your spouse. Young people, how on earth are you going to honor and obey your parents? Maybe you can do it externally, but to really do it with sincerity of heart, to have the kind of mindset that God has commanded me to do this, that's why I need to do it, and I want to do what pleases God. You won't have that kind of heart unless you have been coming and drinking from this fountain. You need Christ. We all need Christ. In the workplace, if you've been neglecting coming to Christ and and drinking, you'll get irritated with your co-workers instead of meeting them with rivers of living water flowing from you and blessing them. We need this overflowing life of the Spirit in all these ways. We need it in our ministries in the church as well. I want you to turn me to Colossians 1. Verses 28 and 29. It says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Our focus in ministry should be proclaiming Christ so that everyone is made complete in Christ. This is a task that is too tall. We must strive in the strength that God supplies. That's the only way it can happen. We must come and drink. We must find our satisfaction in Christ so that we overflow with 
the life of God so that we can serve and bless others for the glory of the God who gives us life. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to show you where you've gone dry and ask the Lord to lead you back to the fountain and drink and do so fixing your heart on His promise. The promises of God are amazing. His promise is that He who believes in me out of His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You can trust that. It's a promise. So we see that the King of kings and Lord of lords extended a most glorious invitation on that last and great day of the feast. He proclaimed this invitation, inviting anyone to come who thirsts and to drink. John explains the significance of this invitation, clarifying that Jesus is speaking of that new covenant blessing of the overflowing life of the Holy Spirit that was to come for these believers, those who believe in Him. And then we saw the responses to the invitation. The crowd divides over Jesus. The Officers are taken aback by his speaking. Nicodemus wants him judged fairly. The the Pharisees' leaders, they just hate him. And the only appropriate response is the one he commands. Come to me and drink. Believe in me. And so I urge you to come to him and drink. To believe in him and to keep believing in Him. Be satisfied in Him. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water so that you are a blessing to others for the glory of God who has given you life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are so thankful that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you are the God who gives life to dead sinners, who makes them righteous by the righteousness of your Son accounted to them through faith in him. Teach us, Lord, to come to you and to drink, to find our satisfaction wholly in you. Make us, Lord, channels of your blessing to those around us for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.